This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with the salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of over $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Adventures in Angular link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Adventures in Angular. Ready to master Angular? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to our classes in St. Louis or San Francisco, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code AngularAdventures, you'll get a $10 credit. This episode is sponsored by Telerik, the makers of Kendo UI. Kendo UI integrates seamlessly with both AngularJS 1.x and 2.0. It provides everything you need to integrate with AngularJS out of the box, bindings, component configuration directives, template directives, form validation event handlers, and much more. And yet, Kendo UI tooling does not depend on AngularJS, so if you want to use it with Angular or not, that's totally up to you. You can check it out at kendoui.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 73 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Ward Bell. Hello, everyone. Lucas Rubelke. Hello. John Papa. May the force be with you. Oh, no, you didn't. Hey, I'm with John on this one. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick reminder, go check out jsremoteconf.com. The conference is January 14th through 16th. We are going to be talking a little bit about architecture with Angular 2 now that it's out in beta. And I think Ward is going to explain a little bit better than I can what we're after here. Yeah, we're all pretty excited about uh, the beta release, which was yesterday is relative to when we're recording. Woohoo! And and beta means, by the way, that we should expect fewer breaking changes than last year. <laughs> I think that's how that works. So are we up to beta 42 yet? We are at beta zero as we speak. But I've heard the team talk very seriously about controlling the breaking changes. It's not that it can't happen. But you have to run a gauntlet now to get a breaking change in, you know, if it hasn't been pre-approved. So I'm feeling pretty confident that we've crossed an important divide and the product will expand. It'll improve, but it will not break on you. So with that said, I think our wish as a podcast is to, over the next weeks and months, really uh, go into how Angular 2 is put together. We'll talk about other things, of course, along the way, but to have some real substantive shows about what Angular 2 is and how it works and to ask challenging questions. And we thought we'd open with a discussion of the the most important architectural aspects of Angular 2. And so there's a page on the developer guide that's dedicated to that. We'll put that link in our show notes. And it begins by identifying eight main building blocks. And we thought we would try and take a look at those, see if they make sense to us, challenge them, and so forth. And so the first one on that list is the notion of a module. And if you've looked at any of the samples, you'll see the, the TypeScript samples. You'll see they're really, they really emphasize that Angular applications are modular. They're built up out of modules, little small modules that do one thing. Uh, modules usually a fi- you know, translates to a file with one class in it. And then you'll see, if you look behind the scenes, a, a, a reliance on some kind of a module loader to help you um, dynamically assemble the application on the fly as you're going. Uh, so if you were to look at your index.html, for example, it has a bunch of scripts at the top and then one sort of system import. That's the, the module loader at work. Loading the top-level component that you know sits at the root of all things. And after that, you don't see any more in your index.html because some kind of a module loader, in this case system.js, is busily loading 
files as you need them and resolving their interdependencies as you need them to. And that notion is – yeah. I I love where we're going in this, but can I step back for just a quick sec? Sure. I got asked this literally about 20 times in the last day since the beta was released uh, through Twitter and other rooms, and that's, okay, it's out. People start feeling compelled now to figure out what can I learn and where should I start? And they started throwing out all these terms, like all these features, like hooks for life cycles and, you know, uh, the inputs, the outputs and interfaces. And Mm. I think they're trying to grasp, you know, of the 5 million things you could learn in Angular, what is, where should I start and where should I get my arms around? around? And I think what we're kind of settling in here in this episode is what we're suggesting is start with the architecture, start with here are the most important things you need to know about Angular 2 when you start coding. Is that right? I think so. Of course, the first thing you want to do is a hello world just to know that the thing can stand up and breathe and it's not going to kill you to do it. And you're certainly sure. going to want to take this tour of heroes thing that I think you know something about. But when you're really trying to learn it, I, that's where I think people should start. They should start with getting a f- sort of an overview, an architectural overview so that we know where the big pieces are. Then they because can start. It's hard to dive deep on everything. Yeah. Yeah, you, know, yeah, you just right. want to get an idea of what does the playing field look like? Some guys got golf course. So I used to golf a lot, don't anymore, but. When you go to golf course, you kind of get an idea of what does the hall look like before you go play it. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what this is about. You know, what is my experience going to be about? Yeah, I, what I'm seeing here with this is that essentially this document tells me where I'm going to be putting all of the bits and pieces of my application. So some of the things are going to wind up in modules. And within the modules, you have components. So some of the stuff's going to wind up in a component. Some of it's going to be in a service. Some of it's going to be in the template. Some of it's, you know, and so it's, it's okay. Here's how you think about where you're going to stick this stuff. So once I know kind of the shape of the different blocks that I can build things with, then I can go back and I can actually put together an application that makes sense and use these tools properly so that they all talk to each other in the way that Angular kind of expects them to. That sounds right to me, Chuck. I think that's a good way to look at it. I'm kind of curious since, you know, Ward Ward was the main driver of this document, and uh, I think it's fantastic, actually. But I'm curious to see, if, since uh, I don't know if you guys have seen it before, what is your impression when you look at this? So I hadn't seen it before today. It's interesting having built some Angular 1 apps, looking at this and seeing a little bit of where things are different and a lot of where the things are the same. For example, directives, I mean, they've changed, but the concept is basically the same. Data binding, it works a little bit differently, but a lot of the concepts are the same. You know, the component and the template are kind of, you know, they're they're a little bit different approach to some of the things that I've done. Dependency injection is done with the uh, injector, and that works differently, but dependency injection is the same principle, and it works mostly the same way. I mean, looking at this, if you're familiar with Angular 1, you should be able to browse through it. I had to read the module section, I think, twice to really kind of feel like I understood it. But the rest of it was mostly pretty straightforward. Well, that's good. I, you know, I had the same sense that the, that you can almost visually see here the alignment with what you know in Angular 1. You know, a template. Oh, yeah, we used to have a view, right? We used mm-hmm. to have HTML. Component. We used to have a thing called a controller. That sounds familiar. Yeah. You know, so I, 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 think, um, I think that's right. I, I do see that one thing that I didn't use a lot of, or if I did, it was just kind of the way that it was presented to me, uh, is the module. So the module seems to be a little bit more of a, a major departure, I guess, from what the way I usually did things. But having written a, a lot of code in a few languages, like Ruby, for example, I've done quite a bit of Ruby. It is nice to have kind of that container where everything else lives and be able to move it around and think of it as one piece. Well, you know, that's really an interesting point. And I think, Lucas, in the pre-show, you were you were talking about this a little bit, too. I should emphasize that this particular document is appearing within the TypeScript language track. There are other language tracks, like those people who are interested in just straight-up oh, JavaScript. Or there are people who are interested in Dart. Those are the two other language tracks. And in the JavaScript language track, which were which is just being developed from the documentation perspective, we make a point, which it's it's also true for TypeScript, which is you actually don't have to use modules if you don't want to. Now we think modules. Yeah, I know. Shocking. (laughs) It's just shocking. Modules are so. I mean, they're so natural within the TypeScript and ES6 land that I've almost forgotten that you can't. You don't have to use them. 
and certainly in most of the examples we do it and we encourage people to do it, but you, you don't have to do it. In fact, you can program with ifies, with a, what are the, immediately invoked function expression. Function expressions. Thank you. You absolutely can do that. You can just play your scripts in here like you did in, in Angular 1. You can create a namespace for yourself, call it app, and put all of your application pieces on onto that namespace. And there doesn't have to be a, a module in sight. You don't have to use import-export. You don't have to do that. And no, but this is really interesting, Ward, because... When you first showed me this page, modules weren't part of your thoughts, were they? That's right. They were not part of this page originally. Oh, wow. And I, Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's the first thing. So, you know, when I looked it over, Ward gave me a chance to kind of just get my feedback. feedback. And I, quite honestly, I thought it was pretty darn awesome right from the get-go. And everything in there was great. But we have a tendency when we review things to think about, let's just review what's there. But the one thing that kind of stood out to me is, geez, when I'm learning Angular, one thing that's always in my way in some way not just Angular, but Aurelia or React or anything new, is modules. We're all heading there. And while modules aren't an Angular thing, if you don't have a grasp of them, I feel like you're kind of hurting yourself. So I think that's one of the reasons I'm happy it's in this. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think you should do it, but you, know, but you don't have to do it. And even if you decide you never want to use modules, it's probably a good idea to at least understand it because you're going you're gonna to learn from other people's examples and they're going to use modules. Well, well, let me tell you a little story. So when I was learning JavaScript, I was basically learning web development at the same time. And so what we had at the time was prototype, I think is what it was called before jQuery. And then jQuery came along and that was real nice. So then most of my JavaScript was really bad jQuery. Uh, I call it spaghetti jQuery. And, you know, so then things moved on a little bit further and I got to know another nice way of organizing my code called Backbone. And I did quite a bit of Backbone, and I really liked Backbone because it gave me a little bit more organization around my code. And at the same time, I was using Rails, and it gives you a whole lot more uh, convention around the way that you use your code or write your code. And so when I discovered Angular, it kind of gave me a little bit more nuanced setup for the way that I wrote my jQuery, essentially. And the jQuery stuff was partially built into Angular, which was nice. So I didn't have to think about it. I could just put a directive around something and it'd work. And so I would mostly use Angular to just enhance my HTML and make it do things that were a little bit harder to do without some plugin and a bit of know-how to glue everything together in jQuery. Mm -hmm. So now when I'm getting into Angular 2, all of a sudden, I have all these tools that I'm used to in another language that give me a lot more functionality and a lot more of the structure that I'm used to in these other places. And it's not that they didn't exist before in JavaScript. It was just that having come up through Prototype and then jQuery and then Backbone and then finally into some medium version of Angular integration into my pages, I just never used them because my path never progressed to that point, and I would have had to go out of my way to learn Require.js or something else in order to do that. And I, I know a whole bunch of people who are in that boat. And so by having it kind of this first-class citizen in the languages we're using now with TypeScript and ES6, you, you know, you have a lot more people that are looking at it and not really completely understanding where it fits in because they're thinking of JavaScript and they're thinking of some of the other coding they do. They've kind of disassociated some of that in their head. And so coming back to this and saying, hey, look, this is real programming with actual awesome primitives and ways of thinking about these problems in JavaScript is kind of novel. And I think it's going to take some people a little bit of work to really get to the point where they're using this naturally in their code. You know, that's such a good point. And, and we certainly, I should, so I should really make it clear. Angular 2 doesn't have its own module system. It's just piggybacking on the stuff that we've learned in ES6 or ES2015 or whatever you want to call it. This is kind of a recommended way to roll. It's a really easy way to roll in TypeScript. But if this was standing in your way between you saying, I think I want to learn Angular, I think I want to use Angular 2, but I just know if I can take this on or not. You can put the, kick the, the modules to the curb until you're ready. Yep. Uh, so I'm glad we, we've been able to get that point across. And we actually have code examples of it. They happen to be on the JavaScript side, but they're there. And maybe we'll, in a future show, really be able to walk that dog. I think that's uh, important, right? We, we've got modules in Angular 1 
Why did they exist? And my view on that is we needed a way in Angular 1 to organize all of our stuff into containers or Tupperware containers, as Dan Wallin, our good friend, says. So we had to have a way to put things together and associate them. Now we don't necessarily need those because we can just use uh, basic ES6-style modules to do that. But if you decide to go somewhere in between, um, there's a pattern you can follow, and, and it'll work. And it'll work fine because we're doing it. Uh, we're doing it on the we, – we happen to be doing it in the JavaScript track, not in the TypeScript track because TypeScript just makes it so easy to use modules that, you know, why wouldn't you use it if it was easy? But uh, I, I completely understand that perspective and, and it shouldn't get in your way. A module system shouldn't get in the way of your enjoyment of Angular 2. Yep. So let's go ahead and I uh, – unless there's something else that we feel like we need to cover with modules, you know, let's let's go ahead and talk about some of these other bits. I mean, we had an episode, I think it was last week, where we talked about components – Let's call out what all eight of these things are real quick. Just list yeah. them out real quickly, and then we can kind of talk about the ones that maybe you, maybe you and Lucas feel uh, need some more attention. Okay. Yeah, so I'm looking at the list. I mean, we've got modules, and we've kind of talked a lot about that. Components, which Ward kind of pointed out, have replaced controllers to a certain degree. And we can dig into what that is here in a minute, because I think it's an important distinction to make. Templates, metadata, data binding, service, directive, and dependency injection. And I know, I know kind of where my questions mostly are going to be at, but I kind of think we should just work our way down the list and at least give people an idea of what they're dealing with. Now, like I said, we did do an episode on components and directives. Well, so let's just, so, so we don't have to cover that in, right. in depth. I think the, in, let's give an intuition about each of these two. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about module, a component, that's a controller. That's something that controls whatever you're displaying on the screen and that, that takes user input. And it's programming. It doesn't itself have any direct awareness of what the visuals are, what the surface is that the user is interacting with. It's programming. It's programming to support a view. Yep. And template is the view itself. That's where you put lay down the HTML. That's where you make it look good. That's the sexy part. That's where Lucas is because he's so sexy. <laughs> Yeah, you know, oh. ow, he's hot. You know, I mean, that's where uh, you see what you see, and you know what? This is an opportunity. This is the opportunity for the designer to do what the designer can do and without having too much awareness of the application underneath. Obviously, they got to talk to a developer, but you know, in order co- they have to coordinate. But they can be. They don't have to step on each other's toes. So this is good in classic pattern language. This is good view controller separation. Yeah, I do want to throw in here, though, that, uh, and I guess we'll get to the metadata, but the metadata on this stuff makes it, in my opinion, a lot cleaner and easier to separate these concerns. Exactly, because you got, you know, without metadata, you just got a class that's sitting out there in space. It doesn't know anything. It's just, you know, it's just got some properties and stuff like that. You know it's supposed to drive a view, but it doesn't know anything. And so what the problem that we had in Angular 1, too, right? I I keep going back to Angular 1, but we didn't have metadata like this, but it's not like these are new things. All the metadata in Angular 2 is solving is, okay, so this component or this controller, if you think Angular 1, has some HTML. Where is that? You know, what's the name of the selector this thing's going to have? So it's just associating things that we had in Angular 1 and, and providing a much more structured, clean way to get there. Exactly. Yeah. This is the real power, is that or in my opinion, this is the thing that I like is that my template now just has, so the example here has a hero list selector. So I just put a hero list tag in there and, you know, I might have to put some other, you know, attributes on there. But for the most part, I just put the hero list tag in there and I don't have to tell it ng dash controller, blah, 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 blah. And here's all the other stuff that you need to know because the component manages all that stuff. And so it knows to go in there and do its job and put the template in place. And exactly. Exactly. And picking up on your idea, I've, got, I've written this uh, hero list component, this hero list controller effectively. Mm-hmm. But it says, I don't know anything about the HTML. You know, I don't know what to do with this. I, I know that it's going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I know this. I'm going to give it a list of heroes. I hope it knows what to do. Right. And that's the way you want to write the component. As an author of the component, you're trying to make sure that you can go out there and grab some heroes and get, make them available to something and leave it to somebody else to figure out how to 
present them properly. Well, the other thing is, is that I don't have to go and program my HTML so that it knows what to do with stuff. The Bingo. JavaScript is smart enough to just pick it up and go, oh, that's what I'm looking for. Now I'll just do my thing in there. And the metadata helps you connect the dots. Yep. The metadata helps you say, hey, Angular, put these two things together. All right, but this, 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 that's how this template goes with this component. And oh, by the way, you're probably going to need uh, to know like what services need to be injected. And, you know, maybe there's some other stuff you need to know. And it's just a way of communicating with the Angular framework about the glue that's necessary to make it come to life. Yeah, so when you look at this stuff. diagram, you see the template and the component, and they've got this. I'm trying to visualize it for folks who might be listening only. You got a template and a component, and you got this like arrow from the component to the template, and then another arrow from the template back to the component, like in a circle, almost like a cycle diagram. Mm -hmm. And it's showing how the component talks to the template, and the template talks back to the component through this metadata and through bindings, properties and event bindings. And what strikes me about this, and I didn't share this as board originally when I reviewed it, is we used to draw a very similar diagram in Angular 1, which had something between the template and the component. And that thing that used to be between them was this dollar sign scope thing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's completely different here. It's still, the metadata is not scope, and not at all. But what the problem that scope solves in Angular 1, that uh, binding the view to the, to the controller, is being solved through the property binding, which is kind of established through this relationship with the control, the component in the template. Yeah. I, I was just going to say one other thing that I really like about the shorthand here with the metadata is that all of the dependency injection is then broken out so that I just, I kind of know what I got and it's in one place and it's easier to read than the really long array with strings and, <laughs> and uh, other uh, variables and literals that I'm sticking in there so that it knows where to hook everything up. Yeah. The things that are supposed to be easy are easy to write. That's the goal. I mean, you can go crazy if you want. You'll, you know, when we dive in someday in depth, we'll learn about all the nifty extra sauce you can sprinkle on here to do something funny. But, you know, the simple thing should be simple. Totally. So that brings us actually to data binding, yeah? Yep. And, you know, people were using data binding all along in Angular 1. The data binding system is different. I think we should devote a show to it at some point where we really look at how it works. But it's certainly a concept you have to understand. And, and I think the big differences are that there is a sense of direction. I mean, we were kind of played fast and loose with that in Angular 1. In Angular 1, you just sort of lay a binding in and don't think about which, which way the, the information flows. And in, in Angular 2, you do. So you, you think about property bindings of, you know, I'm pushing some information from the component into the template. That's how values appear. And then coming from the template back, you're listening to things happening. You're listening to events in the template and you're moving information back. And so there's a much clearer notion of a cycle. But so I think that's a difference. I think another really huge difference is, uh, and we can't, I'm just going to lay it out there without being able to spend the show talking about it. But a huge difference is that we're not actually binding to attributes anymore. This may shock you, but those little things that we see in HTML that look like attributes, we're not actually talking to them anymore. We're actually talking directly to properties of the DOM object. This may just go right over your, your head for now in terms of the implications, but it is actually one of the reasons that the whole thing becomes simpler and more predictable, simpler to use, and I promise we'll, we'll get to that in a show. But the key point, I guess, at this point is just to say, hey, yeah, there's data binding. You need to know about data binding. All right. So this is where I have a few questions because I've heard all kinds of things. And, you know, all the Relay folks or React folks are going one way data flow and blah, 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 blah. And my life is better because it's better. You know, and so I was like, oh, OK, well, my understanding is, is that they're getting rid of two way data binding in Angular 2. And, it, and then right there, it says two way data binding. So. When we're talking about data binding, not to get into depth on how it works, but is it one-way or two-way or evented or what's going on there? Okay, so to that end, you see that there's a very clear data flow. That's what that cir those circles are. That's why there's the separation of property uh -huh. binding and event binding. Okay. And as one, you know, in other chapters, we really dig in and we say, you know, what's typically involved in maintaining the relationship between a text box on the screen and a property in your controller? 
what's really involved in there? What do you want to do when you're doing forms over data? You want the information that's in that you have about, say, a hero's name. You want it to appear on screen. And you want to be able to change that hero's name and have it go back. All right, that's what you want. Well, getting it onto the screen is what the property binding is. That's one way from the value in the component onto okay. the screen. But when I type in the text box, what happens? Keystrokes go in. Events are raised. All right. And so you have an event binding that is picking up those keystrokes and floating that information back into the component. Uh-huh. All right. Yeah. Everything's, you know, it's, it's moving in a single direction. Now I can, and we show you how, I can write those as two separate bindings in Angular 2 and just make it entirely literal. Try to do that. Try and write two separate bindings for every property that you have on a complex form and you're going to drive yourself nuts, right? That's no fun. So because whether you have two binding, two, two-way binding in the system or not, you have a two-way binding problem mentally. I want to coordinate the name in the controller or the model with a name in the template, right? I mean, I mm-hmm. got to do that. That's what yep. Forms Over Date is all about. Make that easy for me, will you? And so they did. What they've done is they've created a syntax that realizes that this is a pattern you see over and over again. And they've simply made a, a syntax that allows you to achieve that effect in one sim- simple binding statement. Okay. So the ng model statement combines these two things into one syntactical notation. Right. So, so it's one way, on, well, one way, one way, and one way, the other way. And mm-hmm. you have a shorthand that says, put both of them in. Because I need them both, and I know exactly what the pattern is, and there's no reason, you know, a framework's here to help me, right? It's not here to make me work. It's and who, who really, you know, at the end of the day, all you really care about, right, is that you can enter data in the screen, it goes to your model, and then if your model is talking to some other place on the screen, it kind of reflects it there, too. So we don't really care, I mean, maybe we do mm-hmm. care, and it covers how it all happens sometimes, but whether it's one-way, two-way, unidirectional, blah, 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 I can type my data, and it actually is propagated everywhere it needs to go. That's right. what I care about. Yeah. So it's it's honest under the hood. It's honest unidirectional data flow under the hood. But as somebody who has to get work done and has 50 input boxes to deal with today or select boxes and all that, I've got a notation that won't drive me crazy. Right. So then if it has to update it in several places on the screen, then it does the property binding on all of those. And then there's only one that does event binding back to the component that will do the updating. That's not quite so, Chuck. I mean, that's a very reasonable thing I, for it I, to happen. I'm just saying I can set it up that way. You, you if, potentially if I could. Uh, under the hood, what's happening is it's, you're setting up a listener for each individual text yeah. box. That's how it's coming back. Right. Actually, who knows what they're doing deep, deep down. Maybe they, maybe they take a performance trick like you're suggesting. Maybe that isn't a performance advantage and they do that. We don't have to care. No. What, what, we need, what we need to know is that it honestly is unidirectional flow, you know, a property binding in and an event binding out, mm-hmm. but they've made the syntax simple so that we don't have to be, have that squished in our face, but we can write the way we want to. Yep. But the very, you know, the very notion of data binding is fundamental to what we do here, and that's what we got. I'm just thinking, you know, I'm looking at the diagram again and saying, if I'm starting here from scratch, what do I need to know and what does this mean for me? What I like about this is you've got a very clear picture of a directive hanging off to the side. So they're not gone. They're not dead, right? There's this thing called a directive that's got its own metadata, just like a component has its own metadata. And a directive could also be part of a template. So that's kind of a way, I think, what's the difference and how would you describe the difference between a directive, which can have content, and a component which can have content? Well, the way I like to think of it, first of all, technically under the hood, a component is actually a kind of directive. But I, I, well, let's separate those things out for the moment. The key thing that you can see about a component is that it's intimately tied to a template. A component is about the template. It's about driving a template. And the visual representation of most components is as a tag. So you, saw, you were talking, Chuck, earlier about that hero list tag that you saw mm-hmm. in the example, right? That's the visual representation of a component. That's, that's saying, hey, I, there's a template out there. You should use me. Use me like an element. Yep. You know, I mean, the HTML standards committee doesn't happen to have a hero list element, but we do now. They should. Right? Yeah, right. So there you go. So that's the role of, a, of a, the components to control the template. But, you know, sometimes we don't want to have our own template. We, we want to be able to manipulate HTML without actually having a template. So, for example, one of the most prominent examples in Angular is the repeater, which is called NG4. 
And basically it says there's this, you know. Wait, did you just announce Angular 4? <laughs> I know. Everybody keeps – I know. I'm completely confused about that. I think – I'm going to – F-O-R, correct? F-O-R. Thank you, John. <laughs> but the idea of a repeater is, is you know, I've got some – HTML in there that represents kind of a mini template for representing, say, a hero. And if I've got five heroes, I want to see that template five times. So what is it that takes that one chunk of HTML that you have there that is what a single hero should look like? What is it that takes it and stamps out a new hero five times for each of the five items in my list? Right? That's modifying HTML. And that's what a directive, that's the kind of thing a directive can do. It's, the directive itself doesn't have a template. It is given some HTML to work on and it modifies that HTML. And that's the role of directives. And that's, by the way, the way we used uh, uh, directives most of the time when we wrote them in Angular 1, right? Didn't we use them to sort of embellish some existing HTML and make it do something it couldn't otherwise do before? Yeah, pretty much. So that's that's the distinction, you know. It a directive is for is a modifier, is it is an HTML modifier, whereas a component is more like here's a thing that I want to represent visually. I have to say that now that you've kind of explained a directive that way, where it adds to or embellishes some HTML to do something that it wasn't originally or initially set up to do, I can see where a component then is a special case of this because essentially it it does. It embellishes or adds to existing markup, but its job is specifically to work out things like bindings and also to uh, set up the behavior within that that space and, and kind of own and understand it. I think that's dead on. And so so we've covered directives and templates and components and modules and metadata and a little bit of data binding, right? And uh, directives. Th- right. And we're, we get down to what's number six on Ward's architecture list, which is uh, services. So there were five things in Angular 1 that were services. We had the, the constants, providers, values, uh, factories, and services. Can you kind of explain what a service is in Angular 2, Ward? Well, the first thing to know about a service is that that is our name for it. There is no, uh, unlike in Angular 1 where there actually is a dot service, you won't find a service. There's no specific service contra- construct or contract in Angular. It's, a, it's our idea about what it is we're trying to achieve uh, in this architectural, from this architectural perspective. It's something in this architectural diagram. A service is something that we need that does something of value. Right. And usually, uh, you know, I mean, it could be, you know, think of it, the things that are of value, like I need something to go get data or, you know, I, I, I need uh, some configuration information or I need a logger or I need, uh, you know, there's, as we build up these applications, there are things that we need to do. And they're often little things, but they're important to us. Right. So whatever that thing is, we should have, we should, we should recognize that it has a, a, an independent role. It's, it's providing something of value. It's providing a service to our components usually or directives or something. So that so idea of – go ahead. Like, what are some examples of services that you commonly see in Angular 2 or that we're starting to see? Get data, you know, a data service, a logging service, the initial configuration, maybe a price calculator. All right. So would this be safe to say this is a great place to share data between components uh, in memory type data? You can also have a stateful service like that. Exactly. So, for example, your data service might cache data, right? So when it got one of them got the heroes and another component wanted to also get heroes, it wouldn't necessarily have to go immediately out to the database. It could ask the service for its cached heroes, right? So, yeah. You know what strikes me about this stuff, too, Ward, is that when you define a service in Angular 2, there's nothing to tell it it's a service. Nope. There's right? no, it's, yep. it's just a class. It, it's usually a class. It can be a value. You know, I, I can make pi as, you know, I could think of a pi as a value. I can say, hey, that's my, my pi service or some kind of a function. Yeah, exactly. My mm. Apple pi service. <laughs> the key thing is if you have something you want, now, most of the time it's actually very convenient if you can put that thing that you want in a service, in a, in a class, because Angular kind of likes classes. So if you put it in a class, it's very easy to make it go into something else. Very easy to consume. So let's just say that 90 plus percent of anything that we have a value that we think of as a service that we want to share is going to be a class, right? So that's great. But this is an architecture diagram. So in this case, service isn't so much as you say, John. You won't find 
Angular 2 service anywhere. There's not an API for the service. It's just an, it's an important idea. It's a construct. It means I've got something of value, typically a class. Now I want to use it. How the heck do I use it? I mean, I got a price calculator. I got something that goes and gets data. How do I use it? Well, we, we don't have to, to number eight or whatever. Yeah. Right, yeah. Before, before we get to number eight, one thing that I think would be helpful, I keep going back and forth because a lot of developers that I know, so all the rest of these, I mean, there's, there's a pretty uh, settled way to build them. So you've got your components and, you know, you build them in a particular way. You've got directives that you build in a particular way. You've got uh, your templates that you do specific things with. And with services, you've, you've kind of left it wide open. And I, I understand that it's wide open for a reason because you can really do anything that serves to bridge a boundary either between your Angular application and something else or between different parts of your Angular application. But I'm having a little bit of trouble visualizing like what the code actually looks like other than class uh, foo service and then a whole bunch of functions in it. I mean, is that it? That's it. That's it. Yeah. Well, suppose you had a a sales tax calculator, Chuck. Mm -hmm. You're doing an order entry system, right? Okay. And you have you have something that wants to present, you know, uh, uh, take somebody's order, right? And mm-hmm. you're going to have a component to represent that. Are you going to write the the sales tax calculator right inside that component? No way. And and I I get that. It was just visualizing what this file looks like, like what the actual structure of the code is. And I think just saying, you know, it's effectively a class with a bunch of functions on it. You know, it's just a collection of like functionality that you just collect together and put into a service so that it works nicely together. I yep. think it really gives people that that understanding. So if you're trying to visualize if there's any kind of contract or any kind of API that your service is going to have, effectively that's it. It's a module or or a a class that just encompasses tax calculation or yep. encompasses Ajax calls to the server to get a particular type of data or any data or all data. Exactly. And you know what? When you look at some of these services, any of the service classes that we give examples of, you cannot tell they have anything to do with Angular at all. They just look like work. They do work. Well, and you could call them from anywhere else and you would call yep. them the same way. Tax yep. calculator dot figure out tax on amount. Yep. It's just a class. Yeah. I, I There's just nothing, want- that, nothing that says Angular about it. And so, yeah, go, go ahead, Chuck. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that people understood, you know, there's not an example on the page that I'm looking at, this architecture document, and that's because it is. It's just a class with functionality in it. Do you think there should be? Because that's something we can do. I don't know. And see, the reason why I was kind of going back and forth is that I know a lot of people that will copy the example and then modify it. And I worry a little bit, like if you put a data service up there and then somebody else comes along and wants to build a tax calculator, that they might look at it and go, okay, now I've got this thing that makes Ajax calls. Now what? Because it doesn't fit the mold for the other one. I think if we just threw it as, you know, something that adds 10% to a price on there as a sales tax calculator, just as a sort of a a one-liner function class, people, that might help drive it home. Yep. And and I think if you put maybe two or three examples in there, so you did have like the service where it's making jQuery call or jQuery Ajax calls or something else where it kind of gives the specific examples. Here's what a data one would look like. Here's what a tax calculator one would look like. Um, you know, your logging service is probably going to look a lot like the data service where it's calling out and logging stuff. And, and that can give people an idea. Okay. This is how I would approach these different issues. And it becomes pretty apparent then. Okay. So the message bus, if I have a message bus within my Angular application, then it's making calls to an internal API, you know, so it's within the boundaries of my application, whereas these other ones kind of pad out the external boundaries of the application. Yep. Well, this is uh, wonderful feedback, and I hope our uh, our (laughs) listeners think so, too. (laughs) Anyway, you were moving on to how you get these services into your components, which I think is really kind of a critical thing if you're not putting the logic directly into the component. Right, right. We could new it up, right? It's a class. We could new it up, but we know not to do that. We know from Angular 1 not to do that. Angular 1 had a dependency injection system, and Angular 2 does as well. And so it is, uh, and usually, you know, usually services are injected through the constructor. So you create a constructor for your class that takes 
uh, as uh, parameters the services that you want to inject. And you know, that's the consuming side, right? So I'm a component and I want my sales tax calculator. I simply say I want it. Angular has to know about it. You have to tell Angular about it. And so at some point somewhere, you have to register that sales tax calculator as a service that should be available to anybody that asks for it. And there are a variety of ways in Angular 2 to do that, most of which look pretty simple. And I think that's probably, you know, the dependency injection system is a great topic for another talk. I think it's probably sufficient to know that that's here and that it's, you know, it's fairly obvious what you do to uh, to wire it up. I'm happy to sort of, does anybody feel like they need to go deeper right now? I don't think so. I think we talked a lot about how it visually appears in your code during the metadata section. And if you've been doing Angular 1, you should have a pretty good idea of how dependency injection works. And it appears to work exactly the same way that you would expect it to having done Angular 1. It can work exactly the same way. The nice thing is that it's actually richer than the Angular 1 version uh, in that you can have, it's a multi-level dependency injection system. And what that allows me to do is, and I don't want to do this without actually diving deep into the subject, it allows me to scope the service, to say that this particular instance of this service is only available from this part of the application tree down. All right. So imagine, if you will, I had an application with, with multiple modules. I have one of them that takes orders. I have another one that deals with customers. I have another one that deals with inventory. In Angular 1, I pretty much have, if I have an inventory service, it's available to everybody, right, across mm -hmm. the board. You know, the customer service shouldn't have that access to that service. I'm sorry, the customer module right. and the order entry. Maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't, but there's no reason why this should be thoroughly exposed across the entire application when it really only belongs in one place. And so what I can do is I can say, you know what, this customer service that I have, that's only available within the customer component and, and, and all of its subcomponents. It's only available in that part of the tree, right? And I can make it do that. So that's one of the values of the hierarchical injection system. There are others, and we'll have to do that in another show, but it allows us now to compartmentalize our application, which was somewhat hard to do in Angular 1. It's really easy to do in Angular 2. I can build whole feature areas that are dedicated to a specific problem, and I can make those things stand alone and have them, you know, and not pollute anything else. And I can just, I can just pick that piece up, and I can put it in another application, or I can relocate it within the existing application. It stands alone. It's one piece, and that ability to draw a boundary around a feature area is really a fine architectural principle, and we can do that super easy in Angular 2. Yep. I, I really like the idea of not just, you know, but basically limiting it to, uh, you know, which areas you want it to have it. And, you know, you could kind of do that with dependency injection in other systems, but uh, it looks like they've really thought this through. So you can control where it's available, control where it's not, and yeah, not clutter things up so that you have any more concerns in the area than you need. Right, and so when Lucas and his team is working on the customer uh, feature area and trying to drive that out, and he has his schedule, and his and his team has its schedule and delivery schedule, and all the things that they need to do. When John is working on the order entry system, and he has his schedule and his and his requirements, the two teams can work independently, not step on each other, build their components, build their services, test them independently, run them independently without having to mess with each other, and then bring it together in the in the sort of under a shell application that gives the user the common experience to jump from one workflow to another. But under the hood, we know that these are actually being worked on by different teams, evolving at different rates, improving at different rates, responding to different sets of requirements. And they don't have to spend so much time trying to, you know, with John and Lucas working out when they're going to do what with each other. Yep. So we've kind of talked as long as we usually talk. And I think there's some more to talk about with architecture in general. I think architecture is an overloaded term where we talk about like all of the different pieces that we have in order to build our application. But there's also architecture in, okay, which of these belong in the same files as others? And, you know, how do we, you know, set all that up? And modules definitely get you part of the way there. But I'd love to do another talk about, you know, in general, okay, you put your components into their own files and you put your directives into their own files. And, you know, we talked a bit about inline uh, templates and things like that in the last episode. But overall, this has been really helpful. 
Well, I think John is going to have a lot to say about how to structure your application in a meaningful way, because I think there's a style guide in your future, isn't there, John? There certainly is, and <laughs> we're already kind of evolving how things are looking and how apps, how we feel that apps really should be designed with Angular. And the good thing is a lot of the concepts that are coming out for the Angular 2 style guide are really, uh, they're actually very similar to what's in the Angular 1 style guide. And so if you don't mind, I've been spending the last uh, 40 minutes uh, scribbling in Photoshop, and um, I'd like to just run kind of how I see this by John and Ward and uh, just see if I'm, if I'm on the right path. Uh, so in Angular 1, I have a, a graphic that I've put out. Um, it's on a bunch of my presentations, and I just, just call it the Angular Big Picture. And there's, ironically, eight pieces in the graphic, and it all kind of starts around the view, scope, and the controller. I think everything kind of converges on the particular pair. For instance, if you're setting up a route, you need a view and or a template and a controller. If you're building a directive, you know, kind of the same thing. It all kind of comes together to this view controller pair where in Angular 2, now that becomes essentially your component with your template. And then whereas you had scope before, that's now split in half and you have property binding and event binding. So component plus template equals view and controller and scope equals property binding and event binding. So far, so good. Yes, no, maybe. I thought of this. I, I think it's really close, Lucas. I think that what is confusing to me is the scope. But then that always confused to me. That was always a trash can for me. It had a whole bunch of things in it. Some of it, 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 it certainly was part of the coordination of the binding between controller and view. It also had all this stuff about emitting event, you know, broadcast and the digest and all mm -hmm. that, all that jazz. And it was and like it, if something in Angular 1 didn't fit somewhere else, it went into dollar sign. It scope. went into dollar scope. So right. <laughs> and, and it was also an object. And it was an object that you touched. And in Angular 2, that disappears. The things – you don't need the digest cycle anymore for reasons we'll talk about in another show. So that's not there. There's a, there's a much richer mechanism for managing events, and it's not – it's a separate construct that I didn't mention. So you don't need that in dollar scope. And now we have a binding system in which you, you use the metadata to describe how the binding – you know, what the – parts should be to some degree. So really, dollar scope has no role anymore. It doesn't need to exist because anything it did before has been, has evaporated. And so Either it drops out. Or it's moved into something that was right, right. more intended the, for. There's yeah. no digest. The event, the event management stuff is someplace else in a better place, I want to say. And you don't it's need to. It's in heaven. We killed it. <laughs> oh, no, no. We didn't no, kill no, it. No, no, no. <laughs> no, it's in a... <laughs> but we should we should chalk up a future show to talk about where events go. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's events. I mean, the data binding. We've already talked about that piece of scope is now there. The sense where I'll I'll differ with Ward on this. I think your diagram is okay if you look at scope in your diagram as the way that the controller and the view communicated with each other. And if that's the only piece you're talking about in that diagram, then I think that that makes sense. But I, I agree with Ward that since scope does like ninety things. In Angular 1, that it, it's probably not entirely accurate if you look at it from a holistic view. And in Angular 1, a scope object was something you could actually take a hold of, even for binding purposes. I mean, you for binding purposes, you put something on the scope. If you wanted the name to appear in the view, you had to put it on the scope. That, even in controller as, that was happening underneath. There is no scope object yep. anymore. That's not how the binding works. But it's interesting because um, looking at this, he's got the view and the controller he's got the parallels, right. between it. Yep. And he's got the, the directive is still a directive, and config is kind of what metadata was. Although I think as the metadata on a directive in Angular 2, the equivalent in Angular 1 was probably the DDO, all that right. stuff we piled into a directive before. And then the service in Angular 2, which is really just a class with an injector, that really, let's just look at it as basically the coming together of the consolidation of the five different kinds of services that were in Angular 1. So, yeah, I, I can kind of see this. Right. And then we didn't talk about routing. You have routes in your diagram. And I, I think we should probably put some of these graphics in the show notes, actually, that will mm -hmm. help people look yep. at it. Um, here, so uh, hopefully uh, Mr. Chuck can put those in the page for us. Yeah. We yeah. didn't talk about routing because that's going to be a show of its own. But where you have routes there, Lucas, yeah, there are going to be routes in Angular 2. Yay! I can put it back in my diagram. <laughs> <laughs> I think yes. your diagram and looks nothing, like an airplane. 
Yeah. Nothing of the core Angular. So forget all the peripherals around Angular, like uh, NGRia and you know Material Design, mm-hmm. all that other stuff. Nothing that I've seen that was in the core of Angular One. Like when it gets down to there's a functionality I need. None of that is missing in Angular Two. Right. Uh, in some cases, it's almost exactly the same, like the way you deal with stuff. But in other cases, it's just moved to a more appropriate area, kind of like events. Yeah, well, the other thing is, is that, you know, some of the things that we have talked about, like dollar scope and stuff, it all kind of got sucked up into the component and made basically automatic. Yep. Now I'll go, I'll go negative on this for a second. So the one really nice thing a lot of people tell me about dollar sign scope, and you guys know, if you know me well enough, I don't really like dollar sign scope. Um, I tried to use control RAS just to abstract it to get away, but I'm thrilled to get rid of it entirely. But the one thing people told me they liked about dollar sign scope, and I kind of can see it, is that it gave them a tangible way to say, okay, this is the thing that gives me data binding. Mm. So if I need to data bind, I know exactly where to go. Now in Angular 2, there is no thing that I can touch and feel that gives me data binding. But before I answer, I guess it works. How do you feel about that? How would you answer that? Well, it was that's hard for me because I never wanted a thing. Basically, I I wanted my controller in Angular 1, and this is why I used controller as, or I wanted my component in Angular 2. It has a surface. It has properties that it exposes, like name or a model object or, or, or a title or whatever it is. And I just want to be able to bind to it. I don't want to have any great ceremony about that. If I've got it on my – if it's public on my component, then you can bind to it if you want to. I don't need any special object to hold anything. All right? So I never I, – to me, I, you know, I looked at Dollar Scope and I hated it on site when I first saw it. Yeah, my thing is, is that, so I feel like I've got the power when I've got some explicit object that I can go and monkey with. And that's, I, I, I see why people like that in dollar scope, but for me, it never passed the sniff test to go modify it directly because the controller always had a way of effectively doing that anyway. And so by going and directly modifying dollar scope, I had to, yeah, I, it just didn't pass the sniff test for me because it, it, it kind of belonged somewhere else. I'll go back to my VB days. It was kind of like the tag we used to have back in the late 90s in VB. It's like, you can't figure out where to put this data? Create a tag property. Yeah. <laughs> now, the one thing that people used to tell me that they liked dollar scope for that made some sense was that they needed – they would often use the fact of scope inheritance to communicate from one controller to another by putting things in the scope and picking them up someplace else. That was always an anti-pattern in Angular 1, but it sure was convenient. Yep. Awful lot of people did it, all right? And obviously, without a dollar scope, there's no way to cheat no, uh, and do it that way. But you, there are still a quite a variety of ways of doing. Actually, there's every bit as uh, an easy ways to share information between components at any level in Angular 2. That's a great topic for another show. If I had to distill it down, the one thing, one of the mechanism that you already have is the service. If you need to share state among a bunch of controllers, create a service and have them all inject and share it. Bingo. Yep. So I've got to say something here. Uh, I tweeted out while we were talking, I tweeted out the link to the diagrams that we've been talking about. And a couple of people have commented, but here's, here's a tweet from a guy named Kumanin on Twitter. And he says, fantastic documentation. The diagrams are so simple to understand. I went to the whole doc in one hour. Uh, so kudos, Ward, for putting this together. I think uh, people are going to appreciate this. Tell them the check is on the way. <laughs> hey wait the picture on that guy looks a lot like you wait a- oh! <laughs> we, you know i do have a little love fest with myself <laughs> tmi all right uh let, let's go ahead and get to the picks lucas do you want to start us off with picks Sure. So I read a book this week that I think is a life changer, and it's The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Oh, it's so uh, it's about like three hours on an audiobook at 3x. It took me like an hour to get through it, and it changed my life. He talks about resistance, and I don't want to spoil it, but I think everybody who is creative or entrepreneurial or just wants to do more better should listen to this book. It's phenomenal. Can I spend another... 3x hour of your time. Yeah. Do the work, Stephen Pressfield. Awesome. Both books are excellent. It's unanimous. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John, what are your picks? First, in the season of the holidays here, I want to pick my awesome host's co host for this show. Uh, I really enjoy the year and a half now. I think we've been on the air and 
you guys are pretty darn awesome and a great group of eclectic people and uh, always go to these conversations and all of our guests as well. Uh, as far as a non-sappy pick, there's a book that I read recently. Yep, I can read too. Uh, it's called <laughs> The Five Dysfunctions Team Leadership. And I'll put a link here in the show notes. It's a fable about a leadership team and how they're so amazingly dysfunctional. And I read it and wow, you could just see so many ways it relates to um, companies that I've either consulted for or worked for directly. And I'm not just picking on people because there's good things and bad things that are in it. But it's amazing how you can pick these things out. And it really kind of taught me some information about how I can talk to leaders. And I think it's a great thing, whether you work for a big company or a small one, the way we communicate with people who kind of pay our bills is really important. That's, that's kind of a key piece that often gets lost in technologists. Uh, communication is a key aspect of that. Outside of that, I have some general picks, and that's the stuff in the Angular docs, the wonderful architecture diagram that Ward's been pointing out that he was the main author on, or in fact, I think he was the only author on. And then also there's some great uh, developer guide and tutorials up there in the main docs. And there's a blog post I put in the show notes, which is the announcement of Angular 2. So get it while it's hot. Nice. I just want to say that uh, or you picked why uh, things like Dilbert and The Office are so funny with that dysfunctional leadership pick. Yeah, I, I read this book and I got to tell you, it was almost uh, too close to home sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's funny because my wife, I, I used to watch The Office like every time it came, you know, I was like there when it came up. I wouldn't even DVR it because I, I loved it so much because it was so funny. And she was like, this is the dumbest show ever. And I was like, yeah, but I've worked with all these people. You know, the worst part about that show is I could never watch it. Cause I watched like two or three episodes, but Steve Carell, the guy he plays in that, uh-huh. I actually worked at a company where that guy was basically the guy who owned the company. Uh-huh. And it was just, it just made it too close to home to me to, to watch this going, oh my gosh, I lived this. This is terrible. Yep. All right, Ward, what are your picks? I've been... So heads down the last week on uh, my team's contributions to the beta that I don't have anything from the side, but I do have this. One of the things I learned during this log is just how uh, important my wife is to me. (laughs) And so uh, my pick is my wife because, man, I was just hard to live with and she somehow manages to do it and make my life easy. So everybody should have a wife. Like mine. But you can't have mine. Mine's taken. Well, wait a second. I think Lucas just typed in that his pick was your wife, too. So <laughs> That's what I was afraid of. Uh, well, we can, we, we can talk rate. Oh, uh, awesome. If your wife's not listening, man, if she's in the room, you're in trouble. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So having a good, strong support system at home is, is a key thing when you're, uh, when you're an overworker like some of us are. Yep, definitely. All right, I've got a couple of picks here. Um, mine are much less related to Angular. Uh, the first one is I listened to this podcast this last year, and it was amazing, and I loved it. It's Serial, and Season 2 is coming out. So go check it out if you're interested. It's about Bo Bergdahl, who's the guy that uh, um, there was all the controversy over President Obama trading some terrorists out of Guantanamo for a deserter, if you heard that news story. This is the soldier that left his post. And it's really, really interesting. The first episode is basically him telling his story in his own words. They have a bunch of recordings. They explain where they get them from and, you know, that they got permission from him to air them. They don't ever talk to him directly, or at least that was the impression I got uh, from episode one. Episode two comes out tomorrow as we record this. And I'm really, really fascinated by just seeing what makes people do what they do and how the whole thing kind of got blown up from one soldier disappearing and then being traded for and gotten back five years later and all of the things that are involved with that. So I'm really interested in, in knowing more about the story. Can I, I just pile on there for a second, Chuck? I think Serial is one of the most brilliant series ever. It's a spinoff from This American Life or something like that. Last, mm-hmm. The last seasons was amazing. Yes. And this one, this one will be too. Yeah, and I know that this is a much more politicized story, but so far they're just telling the story. So they're not pontificating at all on whether or not you know, the president was right to trade back for him. They they haven't really discussed anything around, you know, the different viewpoints there. It it really is about the story, which in in my opinion makes it so that I can stomach it without disagreeing on one point or another, and I can really just kind of find out what happened. And the last one was about a murder trial, and that one was also really, really interesting. I think Adnan from season one 
I think he's actually getting an appeal. But the thing that's really interesting, too, is that they never tell you what to think. And so you have a whole bunch of people on both sides of the aisle that think, you know, that this kid committed the murder or didn't commit the murder and that he should have gone to jail and he shouldn't have gone to jail. And so they really do just tell the story and leave the, you know, the opinions up to you. I feel I have a feeling that's exactly the way this will play out. Yeah, they're just we're just going to hear about all the different ways in which this guy's life has been perceived and how their perceptions and the political football turn his life inside out. Yep. The other thing that's really interesting, there was a talk at Podcast Movement this summer by the main reporter. I don't remember her name, but she gave one of the keynotes at Podcast Movement. And so for an hour, she just talked about it and answered questions from the audience about Serial. And I'm kind of hoping they do that again this year, but I kind of doubt it. But yeah, lots of interesting stuff going on there. The other pick that I have, I've had this Pebble Time Steel for a while. There are a lot of things I like about it. I've had this love-hate relationship with the watch band that came with it. But it just got an update this morning, and it turned on all of these health tracking features. And so now I'm getting like steps counted and all of these other features out of basically out of my watch. And it's showing up in uh, HealthKit or the health app on my on my phone. And I'm really, really digging it. So I'm just going to pick the uh, Pebble Time watch again. because Is that new have... hair you're growing to? Did the Pebble watch do that? <laughs> uh, it, it only grows on the bottom half of my face. So those are my picks. All right. Well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the, the talks we're going to have in the future. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Sorry for my kids screaming. We'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today. 